everyone, and welcome to the Novic Gaming Podcast, a podcast in which we explore the business and future of video games. I'm Aaron Bush, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Christian Facey. Christian is the co-founder and CEO of AudioMob, is building at the cutting edge of ad tech. And today we're going to dive deep into his view of the ad tech market and learn more about all things AudioMob. Christian, welcome to the pod. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really looking forward to this. Me too. And to kick things off, maybe let's let's lay the foundation for our listeners. What is Audio Mob's mission, and what's the the story of why and how you started this company? So, our mission originally was to link um, mobile and audio opportunities, but our ideas and dreams have gotten much bigger than that, and we want to become the ultimate audio content delivery platform. And uh, what we do is uh, we invented non-intrusive audio ads in games. So imagine, you know, you're racing a car and uh, for you to get a power up uh, or to, you know, get an extra life and continue playing, you need to watch a 30 second video ad. It gets quite annoying, even though video ads are a really, really good uh, way to monetize in this current uh, uh, gaming ecosystem. But what we do is imagine that you crash the car or you need a power up and you could listen to a, a radio ad coming out of a car radio, for instance. It annoys players less, it's incremental revenue for the game developers, and um, the advertisers, the brand advertisers, get a 2,000% increase in engagement. So there's a real trifecta of value between those three participants, and, and, and that's what we, uh, what we do. Gotcha. And we'll discuss more details about AudioMob specifically in a little bit, but first I just want to talk a bit more about this, you know, this ad tech market and specifically the role of audio ads in general. And so when I think of audio ads, the first thing that pops into my mind, and I'm sure I'm not alone, is the kind of stuff that you hear on Spotify, SoundCloud, or the radio. Audio ads on audio-driven media, right? Um, and you you gave one example, but I, I'm curious if you could expand on what you just said a little bit more. What does it really mean to have an audio ad on a non-audio-driven media like games, and you gave the example of you know maybe listening to like a radio in a car as you're racing. But maybe could you just give another example or two of like what this looks like and how it can work? So I guess I could use an example in the video ad medium, right? So you've got a video ad; it's being put into a video ad medium such as YouTube or TV, and while it gets your attention in a more forceful, intrusive way it does block the primary motive. You don't go to television to watch ads or you don't go to YouTube to watch ads. You go there to consume content that you have chosen to view. And it's quite interesting because when you take an audio ad that's being put into Spotify, for instance, your primary motive is to listen to a podcast or a piece of music, not to view the ad. So it is still intrusive. However, there have been examples where, for instance, you're highly engaged in um, a different action, even though audio is the uh, the medium from which you transfer a message. Let's take driving in a car. Hopefully, you'd be really engaged in driving the car so you don't like, crash or run over people, right? But an audio ad in a car, you're engaged um, driving, but the audio ad has got your attention. But that's not like the core thing that you're uh, you often concentrate on. So um, if you could take your programmatic out of home um, ads, such as your Amazon Alexa or your uh, or your Google device, what you'll see is that often that is playing in the background. You're engaged in something else, and then the audio ad comes in and it just plays and intermingles with what you're uh, listening to in the background. Now, what the fascinating thing here is, if you take an audio ad 
and you intermingle it into a medium where you are actually engaged in something else and you're not blocking the medium, we take away that annoyance that the audio ad is, you know, blocking the game because it's not, you can still drive that car. Um, and it's not like it's blocking a, com a critical component of the game, which could be, for instance, um, the sound of the car driving. However, audio ads don't work if you were to be put into a, a mobile game like Guitar Hero, for instance, where you need the audio cues in order to progress through the game. That would be intrusive. Yeah. So if you use an engaging medium where the presentation of the ad isn't blocking the engaging medium and kind of interacts natively around it or in it, uh, then, then you've got the golden trifecta because you're taking advantage of that engagement without actually blocking the engagement. That's why I use the driving car example because it's it's a golden uh, uh, opportunity and, and a best-in-class example of what we do. Yeah, it even reminds me of just playing um, like GTA where you're in a car and there is the radio and you know they, they make sure to make it it's not the main thing you're focused on, but they, you know, try to make it entertaining and valuable. And obviously, ads are a bit different from <laughs> what they do at GTA. But you know, if you make it interesting, um, it could still, you know, add value to to the player as well. Uh, but that's cool. So, give us a sense of the market today. Then, maybe excluding, you know, the the um, the music podcast radio corners of the market. How big is the audio ad market? today um, for what you're working on and how quickly is it growing? So depending on how you look at, you know, how it's cut, so to speak, I mean, you could easily find a close to $100 billion of, of audio ad revenue, but it's very cut up into podcast, into music, analog um, um, radio as well. Uh, there's still a lot of traditional ad dollars that are filtering into digital radio. So it's cut up into a number of segments, but it's still a very, very big market. It's growing anywhere between 20 to 30%, and it is definitely more resistant than um, certain performance-oriented, like the display market, for instance, in a downturn, because audio ten tends to be much cheaper. So yeah, it's a very, very big, very, very fast-growing market, and you know, there's a reason why Spotify is worth tens of billions of dollars. It's double-digit um, compromisation of revenue. It's actually around audio ads and how much audio ads it can deliver. So it's a really, really yeah. uh, a lucrative medium to, to get involved in. Yeah, well, maybe if we drill that into games, how how big is this? Um, well, I guess how big is the opportunity for this in games versus where we are today? Do you have any... Any numbers around that that are interesting to share? Yeah, absolutely. So the if you take the gaming um, market right now, it's around $110 billion roughly in terms of what could be attributed towards mobile gaming. And that is at least due to double uh, within the next uh, eight years or so, well, close to seven years now. When you take the audio ad market and what is being potentially funneled into the gaming market. I mean, you've got at least $40 billion roughly in the audio programmatic ecosystem that now because of AudioMob and other players that have entered our space can be programmatically connected to the mobile gaming space. So I want you to think about this as like the largest untapped tranche of spend to hit mobile, perhaps since rewarded video. Um, and, and, and the reason the reason that this has just suddenly come out of nowhere is that the groundwork has now been done to connect an audio ad that could have gone to Spotify straight into uh, a mobile game with all the kinks in terms of the rorted audio mechanisms, all the different API calls that need to be made so it fits into the game nicely. All of that has now been done. So yeah, the opportunity is absolutely humongous. Gotcha. Yeah, that's super interesting. 
Um, and I'm curious, you know, maybe if we zoom in a bit more to to what you've seen so far. I know you gave again the car example and a couple others, but in terms of on, I guess mobile specifically, what are the best subgenres um, that you know you've you've already seen? Um, like interesting success cases and with with audio ads that have you know added a new like ad unit, which is interesting, but like have kind of helped them unlock kind of a new pillar of their a- advertising strategy. So I'd say <clears throat> pretty much any mobile game that is not story driven so there isn't you know a dialogue or anything anything you know character driven in there because that tends to be a very very like you know we wouldn't try and go into grand theft auto the uh uh, the the story mode in a mobile game for instance because it just wouldn't work in 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 that sense um any kind of non-story driven game or any game that doesn't rely specifically on audio so, for instance, I used the Katai Hero uh, example already. Um, you know, if you're GTA shooting up enemies in the story mode, robbing a bank, and you hear of, like an audio blast, it just wouldn't work. So, those are the only two examples that I can um, that, that we've really researched. But then, across every single kind of mobile game that we've integrated with, I've used racing as an obvious example. You've got hyper casual, right? You've got hyper casual games. Um, the average session time is anywhere between four and seven minutes, roughly. And you've got some rewarded videos that could be in there. Some people accept them if they're non-rewarded and full screen. Other users, for instance, will grind on those rewarded ads to kind of get some power-ups. Other users will do that to a certain extent. And then you've got the users that just won't interact with any of the IAP stuff, any of the video, etc. We can really appeal to those kinds of users in any kind of hyper-casual game. Whether it's um, um, your typical one-clicker, whether it's a hyper-casual racing game, a hyper-casual action game, etc. But then you've got your uh, puzzle games, which is really interesting because that has a very high level of engagement because the users are actually using their brain power in order to solve the said puzzles and progress through the levels. So there's only a certain amount of video ads that you can add before it breaks immersion and then the users drop off. If the users drop off, then the IAP seriously declines. So we have found a really, really interesting um, segment here where you could show users more audio ads and they grind for it to get um, in-game currency. And this is something that we've done with um, Social Point. They're owned by Take-Two and we're in their largest puzzle game. That's been a phenomenal success in terms of providing incremental revenue. And then you've got um, you know, your, your hardcore games as well, uh, some of which I can't mention based on certain legal agreements, but um, um, there's definitely a, a, a massive avenue for these hardcore games with 3D uh, environments where you've got your avatar, you know, um, um, in-world unit economics, etc. in terms of its own economy. We can basically put audio ads in any kind of environment, and we've spent the last two and a half, nearly three years researching that. So it's a very, very versatile um, format, which is why we know it's here to stay. It's why there's not just audio mob. There's many other competitors now entering the space because of the value it provides. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. Thanks for breaking that down a bit more. Um, I guess you know to kind of cover the and we, we've we've talked a lot about like the benefits, uh, which you know could be they're less intrusive. Uh, it's a new type of inventory, pretty flexible in where you put it, all of that. But on the flip side, um, I'm curious, what are the trade-offs here? So for example, if I hear an ad uh, while playing, maybe it's a decent uh, you know, brand ad, but maybe it's less effective for direct response, which 
is a lot of what you see in games, trying to get other games to download, to click on something, etc. Um, and maybe that's not bad, but I'm curious, what are the other nuances to consider that are just fundamentally different um, to how companies should think about implementing audio ads versus the more visual or video-driven ads that they've used previously? It's a really good question, and uh, uh, we kind of have learned about uh, baptism by fire. This was back in twenty, early twenty twenty one, actually, where um, we gave the uh, the audio ad. Um, this is when we had less examples, so we gave the audio ad uh, Unity plugin, and um, we were like, okay. Here's some ideas for you in terms of how you can integrate this into a, this was a hyper casual um, racing game, like a biking game. And uh, the developer treated the audio ad unit like a video ad unit. So you've got, you know, your five, well, five and a half minutes roughly, the average user time session. And they were putting 30 second audio ads every 30 seconds. Now, even by video ad standards, I mean, you don't really want to watch 30 uh, seconds of ads every 30 seconds in five minutes, like 50% of your time. It's like, it's not going to work, is it? So um, that was interesting. And what you could see is that there is that there was a massive drop off in retention. And it was like, oh, it was audio ads. But no, it was because the best practices weren't, weren't used. So you can't really use this like a video ad because it's still an, at the early stages where games are not yet designed around audio ads. They're designed around video ads. So... When it comes to, I mean, for us, it's very obvious where the examples are and we just need to seed and educate the market. I believe in two years time, this the games are gonna be designed around audio, just like they'll be uh, designed around in-display native ads, those billboard ads, as well as your video ads. So that's something to be really, really careful with. It's not, you know, just plugging in the audio ad every 30 seconds, just chucking in there and it will work. You have to like really use the best practices that we've researched. Another thing as well is, um, I mean, I know, I know we'll probably talk about this later in terms of the IDFA uh, adjustments in the industry and whatnot, but my hypothesis uh, alongside Wolfrids, and we came up with this back in 2020, is that there's really going to be a new monetization stack. We're optimizing towards the 5% of the 4 or 5% of the users, eight on a good day, uh, uh, who actually interact with IAP. Just optimizing towards those users isn't gonna isn't gonna work, or just optimizing to the users that watch video ads. Again, all of these are like below double digit, and you really need to have the right formats shown to the right users. So the the other example I'll give is like a lot of developers were initially concerned that you know the CPMs for us range between five to ten dollars for non rewarded and up to. Fifteen dollars for uh, uh, for awarded for certain um, um, IP buys, it could go up to forty dollars on, on some occasions. But the point is, is that you know you, you could get a rewarded video ad that's like forty to eighty dollars, right? And you've got one trigger point for the reward. You don't really need to use that trigger point because you're going to have certain users, for instance, that will keep grinding the video ads until there's none left or they will grind the video ads and then you show them one or two audio ads and then you revert them back to video. So this isn't um, uh, a way to displace how you're currently monetizing, but it can be used additionally as well. It's just that there needs to be more nuanced thinking as to where the exact trigger point is and where the placement will actually play. So again, the, these are quite um, nuanced and complicated topics that we have simplified through you know, our, our best practice research that we've done over the last nearly uh, three years or so. So Christian, you said the IDFA word. So maybe let's let's jump into that just a little bit more. And this might be a dumb question, but how are audio ads affected by Apple's ATT policies? Are are you seeing 
you know, any challenges from less effective targeting or is it still too small, early or different? Or, you know, if maybe this is more friendly to brand advertising, it's just, you know, it works more favorably on average. How, how do you think about audio and IDFA? What's the story there? So to go to go into my background, um, I, I worked at Google and I worked at, at Facebook as a science partner. So that's measuring the true value of ads. It's becoming a measurement expert. And uh, back in 2018, the week that I left, um, let, let's just say Facebook was very, very worried about what happened in 2021 with IDFA. There was like mm. four main scenarios that were predicted. And um, when we left and we decided to start researching audio and really building the tech stack, uh, our CTO, Wilfred, he's an ex-Google engineer, like expert in the space. Um, we built the stack in a way where we knew that contextual advertising uh, was going to be the bread and butter of generating the, the CPMs I, I previously mentioned. And we could use personal data as a way to further solidify those uh, those higher CPMs. But it wasn't, um, you know, the, uh, the be all uh, and end all. And um, what we what we found is that when the IDFA uh, uh, scenario occurred last year, uh, we were completely unaffected because our CPMs were built by uh, built upon you know brand advertising, doing more uh, a contextual targeting rather than using personal data. So uh, developers have definitely started using audio as a way to kind of cushion uh, cushion spend. Now, don't get me wrong, from a UA perspective, there's still research being done to use audio as a, a UA tool. And uh, for performance advertisers, it's still a bit of a tricky uh, situation. But uh, in terms of the way that we monetize using contextual ads, we were completely unaffected by the, uh, by the change. Gotcha. All right, well, let's go ahead. We've been beating around the bush for a while, but let's talk a bit more about um, audio mobs specifically. And maybe to, to kind of start this part of the conversation, could you just say what what exactly is AudioMob's product uh, to kick that off, and maybe after that you can talk a bit about the business model? Yeah, so um, AudioMob's business is in two sides. So uh, we have a Unity plugin that we use. That's a drag and drop solution that can be very very easily integrated uh, into uh, games built with Unity. Next year uh, there'll be a, a general SDK where we can um, in integrate into any app. And then we also work directly with advertisers as well. So rather than just relying on third-party demand sources, we actually have our own uh, DSP, our own advertising platform, and we interact directly with advertisers, agencies, resellers, uh, and, and of course, uh, big brands. Okay, cool. And as very much a non-ad tech expert, something that I've been wondering um, is why do we need a new company to focus exclusively on audio ads? Uh, so I'm curious, Christian, what, what competitive advantage in your mind comes from that focus that other existing ad networks or you know, other kind of companies in the sphere can't mimic? That is a good question. An investor kind of question, and we got asked this a lot during our, our seed stage. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be really candid, right? Taking an audio ad that could have gone into Spotify and putting it into a game. It's a very, very simple concept. Like when I tell people about this idea, you get exactly the same reaction. It's like, oh, that is like an obvious idea. But there's a very, re uh, a very obvious reason why you know this didn't exist before. Um, when you take an audio ad and you put it into Spotify, 
you assume that the audio state of the device is on. I mean, who the hell listens to Spotify muted, right? It's it, You just don't assume it. It's just like, for instance, you know, uh, an ad that might go into a, a console game, right? People don't play console games muted. However, there is a lot of debate around a mobile game. Is the volume of the handset on? Is the iPhone mute switch on or off? If it's on, uh, does the SDK that's supplying the you know the ad content is it going to obey whether uh, uh, the iPhone mute switch is on or off? This person listening to Spotify, is the game sound effects on or off? Like there's all these different um, variables which we call the au- uh, the audio state of the phone. Now, what we're able to do is analyze the audio state of the phone and ensure that the volume is at a certain level. For us, it's at least at 30%. And we are the only company in the world that does this. This has already been and been verified. And um, what we're able to do is send an audio ad to the right user with the right audio state. So that for instance, you know, if a user's listening to Spotify, we don't want the audio ad to play over Spotify. We want to pause Spotify, capture the timestamp of where the track is or the podcast is, play the ad and then unpause it all in a seamless fashion and maybe the user gets a reward at the end if it's rewarded. Um, The advertiser also gets verification that the audio ad has played. So it's not just the verification that let's say the impression, that the banner has shown to the user, but the actual audio has delivered to that user at a certain volume. And this, all this data is passed back programmatically as well. So, the reason that we're able to do this is that it isn't just taking audio and plugging it into a game. We've had to build up the whole ecosystem that has mimicked video ads, right? So we've had to build the plugin, the uh, uh, the mediation server. So we've literally invented um, in-game audio mediation, like the Mopop of audio, if you will. We've built the ad exchange, we've built the DSP, we've done all the connections, all the R&D with the ad network. So we could also convert the inventory. We've literally had to do like everything and control the whole uh, ecosystem, if you will, so it's done properly. And what every other um, ad tech stack has to do in order to enter this space, like let's say you know, a typical video um, um, ad, ad network, is they have to retrospectively adjust all of their stacks to accept all the, au- the different audio signals as well as all the video signals, but they've got to do it for a smaller addressable market because the video ad industry is, is worth hundreds of billions of dollars, right? And the audio ad industry is still up and coming. And for them to do that and allocate the same amount of love and resources that their tier one revenue opportunities um, are providing them, it's just going to be a much, much slower and rigorous process. So it's taken a specialist like us to unlock the opportunity because we are literally masters at what we do and we're not, ma- and we're not you know, doers of all and masters of none. Um, so we have a real, real uh, focus on what we're doing here. Right. That makes sense. And you said it was a very investory question, but it seems to that answer hmm. seems to have worked for you guys because um, uh, I think it was maybe last year. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Audio yeah. Mob raised a 15 million um, Series A at, or 14 million Series A at uh, $110 million valuation. So congrats on that. Um, Thank you. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, obviously, that gave you a lot of firepower. To an ammo to work with as you're you're building up this this business. You mentioned launching an SDK that connects all apps and, and cool things like that. But could you just give us a snapshot of the business right now? Um, what what does AudioMob look like right now, and what are you what are you reinvesting into right now? Yeah, so 
<coughs> this this year was uh, definitely a year of uh, headcount growth. So we raised the Series A in November of 2021. We were at around 13 people or so, and then we increased to 41 people. Uh, by the following uh, November, now in December, we should finish at around 45 or so. So really what we wow. did is we concentrated on um, all of the core directors of the business um, to aid our global expansion. So we really wanted to get out of this whole idea of, oh, we're a startup, we're scrappy, we're going to you know try to do everything as quick as possible. It's like, no, we're planning to IPO down the line and we want to build a really strong foundation of exceptional people. So... We did that, and alongside that, we started um, um, creating the uh, uh, the sparks, if you will, of massive growth conversations. So we're not looking to, you know, do uh, a couple of a couple of million a year next year. I mean, we're looking to do some serious revenue to unlock a Series B that could get us, if not to unicorn status because of the current economy, damn near close to it or on the way there. And um, a lot of those growth conversations, we now have the people and the commercial traction and the initial traction with big game developers, not all the way scaled, but definitely in, in, in some of their games to execute that next year. So what we're concentrating on now is now that we've got the people is the, is the global expansion so that we can support um, developers and our agencies and demand partners in, in, in territories locally, like the US, like LATAM, Australia, uh, Southeast Asia, etc. Gotcha. No, that sounds really exciting. And um, you mentioned, um, you know, the plan to IPO. And I, I read an interview with Wired, um, and in which you said a couple interesting things. One of those was also around that. You said, and just to quote, the reason our valuation is so high and why we got investors like Google, Makers Fund, and Lightspeed Venture Partners is because we have a very specific plan to IPO. We see AudioMob as being pretty much the ultimate audio content delivery platform. Now, that's a big vision, and so you just mentioned um, kind of what you're saying is a plan to scale. But how? Maybe just in a bit more detail. Just kind of, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm, I'm curious too. Like, how do you plan on getting from here to there? Like, like what is next for the company to like really enable like that kind of scale? So I'll I'll give as much detail as I can without you know revealing the playbook. But um, of course. Working at Google and Facebook and just seeing that the way that they approach problems has really educated myself and Wolfred as to how to plan for not problems that you have now, but ones in the future in terms of how to IPO in a, in a, in a downturn, for instance, how to build a certain product in a certain way so we can navigate around IDFA, like all, the, all these different things. And um, we've been really, really rigorous in researching our um, ad tech and gaming history, right? There's a reason that King scaled the way it did, or Supercell or Rovio. There's a reason why Applovin is one of the leaders. Unity, IronSource, Inmobi, Mopub. Like we've read up on all these different strategies. And we have a very, very specific method in terms of what we need to build, what we need to raise, companies that we need to acquire after said raise, IPO companies we require uh, we we're going to acquire after we IPO like we we've really thought eight years ahead, and a lot of that initial thinking is to do with our IP because you've got to build a lot and have a, a plan to build a lot down the line before you can then 
sell what you plan to build in order to get that commercial traction. So um, we really, really planned out what we're going to do. And it's based on the proven methodologies of of said companies, right? I mean, there's a reason why all these billion dollar companies I've mentioned have got there is that they have proven out a segment of their market. And we know that based on how Audiomob is the first mover, we've proven the validation, we have shifted venture capital into this area. Now there's competitors coming in, then there's gonna be more spend coming in. Everything is happening that we have predicted. And um, as long as those key benchmarks keep happening at each stage of our plan, which we have said and proven to investors in specific milestones, um, that's that's what we we've, what we've pitched to get there, and we totally believe in in in, in the plan that we have and the vision that we have. Cool. That's really interesting. Uh, sometimes I wish that I worked at a, a Google or a Facebook just to see how they like approach problems and think about scale, as you were saying. But but thanks for um, expanding on that. Um, in that same interview with Wired, you said something else that I thought was interesting. And again, to quote, you said, I do feel the rigor behind our R&D efforts is really overlooked. We had to not only create this industry in the most literal sense, but then validate it as well. So Christian, I'd love for you to unpack this statement too. Zooming back to when you just started the company, how did you think rigorously about R&D and validating what you were doing, especially since it was um, a, a brand new market? Was it all based on feedback from prospective customers or how did you think that through at the time? So we, I started doing a hell of a lot of reading, right, on um, uh, on Facebook, a lot of Facebook, sorry, initially um, Apple's uh, uh, secret labs, right, where they do their, where they do their research, just reading a lot of public knowledge. At Google, I, I looked into Google X. Why does Google X exist? Why does Alphabet have 100 companies? Why does Apple only have uh, like a very, a very few specific companies that they concentrate on? At Facebook, um, I actually look, looked into Facebook Reality Labs, why does that exist? And then of course there's Amazon as well. So I started looking into all these big companies and like how their labs worked, why they existed. And to me, I mean, there's there's a, a quite an obvious reason why you've got some of these companies that are worth a trillion dollars that are still able to grow at an average over a number of years at around 20% a year, it's insane. It's the fact that they keep innovating and staying at the front of the curve. So. I guess the way that we would we think about it, because me, me and Wilfred are like are like uh, Yig and Yang in terms of um, I'm like, let's go to the mood as fast as possible. And Wilfred's like, let's do it in a scaled way. So because he's he's very he's always very very uh, aware of scope creep. And the way that we approach it, right, is that when we started thinking uh, about audio mob, then validating at least that the audio ads in games was a thing. We then had like a thousand different ideas in terms of the applications of these audio ads. And after like doing a little bit of research into some of these other applications, we were like, okay, these nine different ideas can generate a hundred million dollars each if we um, if we execute on the vision because the total adjustable market is definitely there. So we did this by not just talking to clients, but there's loads of partners that reach out to us saying, oh, have you thought about this? It would be great to have this feature. Some of the partners that have approached us actually have attempted to design the feature, but couldn't for various reasons. Mm. Other partners have this technology that, that we don't have, and then we want to integrate with them. And all of these things 
are really, really interesting for the future of the company in terms of increasing our valuation on IPO or actual bottom line revenue once you raise the money to build those out those subsidiaries. And all of that needed to be aggregated into a lab. And we knew that because of all the research we did, finding out what we did at Google, at Facebook, but also reading about all these other labs as well. So it just made sense that if we really want to show investors that we're going to get to you know, a billion dollar valuation, a $20 billion valuation, whatever it's going to be, six to eight years time, that we showed them that we had this knowledge and had this plan and thought this far out. And to our Series A investors, we, we actually brought forward the R&D lab, which is active right now in Abu Dhabi. And we have a head of moonshots. Um, uh, and, and we actually took that structure of grace based on, you know, Google X and then moonshot lab, right? So um, we took a lot of inspiration yeah. from that. And um, yeah, we, we, we came up with the plan and then we just followed it. Very cool. Um, so I know also that ad tech, you know, typically is very much a land and expand type of business. And I imagine, again, you don't have to spill any secret sauce here, but I imagine you are targeting larger customers. And then once you win with them on something, it's then easier to, it's easier and more cost effective to then work with them on their next game, their next subsidiary, et cetera. So, um, you know, I'd love to just learn how you've improved at or systematize that act of deepening relationships with companies. Uh, just to other you know, founders out there, any lessons learned or advice on anything you, you've learned doing that so far? So what I would say, and uh, <clears throat> I wish I gave myself this advice back in 2020 when literally it, it was like there was no rule book and we're just trying to like figure things out. It's, um, don't assume that the client that you're interacting with has the framework for you to follow in order to scale you. So I'll give you an example. Um, there are monetization managers that we've spoken to where, for instance, we'll give a, a best practice and then because of de-risking the, uh, the integration, they'd want to do like a quick and scrappy way, but that quick and scrappy way would lead to a decreased retention. Could be an increased um, opt-out, but decreased retention, which wouldn't make them happy and just waste everyone's time. So being like really, really rigorous with the uh, the scaling framework, I'm not assuming that, that your client is going to know what that scaling framework is and that they'll use it for other companies. Just don't, just don't do that. Uh, instead, have a very systematic step and even put that into the into a contract if you need to of if you follow these best practices we meet these benchmarks we provide you this revenue and then if you were to scale this to five games 10 games or whatever like have that all in like a an almost like a joint business plan so it's almost like a it's a plan that's either contractually uh you're contractually obligated to follow that plan or you just do a handshake agreement but there is a contract somewhere else which has some of those key kpis so, and then this is, this is all uh, uh, not, not, not just the, uh, the scaling plan, but even a test plan where it's like a 10K DAU, just have all of that documented in terms of what you need to do. So you can always refer to that in the conversation. Um, I'd say that that is the key, key thing that we learned. And um, once, once we've done that, I mean, sometimes, you know, you have to uh, tell a much bigger developer that, than you from a evaluation, a headcount standpoint, like, no, we need to slow down. I know you're very excited about this, but we need to do it in this way. Otherwise, everyone's going to waste time and lose money. Um, so yeah, just taking that more authoritative authoritative um, um, viewpoint there and, and structuring things so it's easy for a large group of people on the client side to follow. 
that's absolutely key to uh, systematically scaling a big client. That's really well said. Uh, good advice. Uh, well, as we kind of enter the later part of the conversation and wrap things up, Christian, I'm curious as an entrepreneur and CEO, what have been your biggest learnings over the past couple couple of years? I know it's been um, you know pretty wild economy and venture market uh, environment and um, even ad tech environment too. So I'm curious, just throughout all of this, like what has stood out the most to you as like a biggest personal learning? Biggest personal learning, um, there's two and they're kind of intertwined. Um, we are dealing with a macro economy that spits out more uh, black swan events. So the, these are events that cause a double digit um, um, downturn in an economy, right? There's more of this in the last two years than the last 20 years. And the cadence keeps increasing. COVID, you've got a recession, you've got a war in Europe. Like it's really, really bad. So um, planning for black swan events every two years is key. Like we're planning for, you know, um, uh, a, a new COVID trade to kind of wipe out revenue. Like we're, we're making these plans now. So that, that, that's, a, that's a key thing um, that I wish I prepared for at the beginning of 2020, but I, I never would have known, right? But that, that's a key bit of advice. What, what, is, what does that mean? What does that mean in practice to prepare for something that you can't predict? Does that just mean like having more cash on hand or... Or how do you? What does that mean? So, uh, uh, so I'll give you. I'll give you an example. Um, since the beginning of this year, um, I have made it a mandate to talk to investors, even if I absolutely don't need to, because I always, always need to be um, ready to raise at, at a hands a drop a drop of the hat's notice. Um, also, finding out more from investors about how the macro economy is. A lot of founders are like, I'll talk to investors when I'm raising and then send an update. You need to always be talking to investors. We saw the recession coming in February based on some investor parties I went to at, at GDC. Uh, and then we started preparing for, okay, if there is a downturn and availability of capital dries up, availability of certain types of revenue dry up, just constantly preparing for the absolute worst. Next year, for instance, if we have um, 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 zero revenue where our core revenue is, is coming from, what are the re recession resistant verticals, right? What are the uh, the brands that spend in times of economic downturn during COVID or 2008? Who are the investors that might invest? I mean, we, we found out, right, that um, uh, VCs just do not invest in companies that are even doing well right now, but there's a ton of angels that that do. So you have to change your investment strategy from not a VC strategy, but an SPV strategy. So it's all these different things that that, that you constantly um, have to prepare for. If you prepare for the unknown unknowns, just prepare for the absolute worst thing that could tank your business tomorrow. And that's, that's how we operate now. Gotcha, um, and I know I cut you yeah. off in the middle of your answer. So what was part two? Uh, part two is, uh, sounds counterintuitive, but it does make sense. It's also prepare for the best. So, um, oh, this was back in 2021. So we're constantly like preparing for the worst, preparing for the worst, preparing for the worst. And uh, we forgot to prepare for the best. There was like a, 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 a seven figure deal that just came out of nowhere and we weren't ready to accept it. We didn't have the headcount. We didn't have um, the right inventory, but we didn't know that, you know, Disney was going to come around the corner and just say, hey, we want to shovel this money at you. We were ready for that this year, though. But um, preparing for the best is, is definitely, definitely key. Prepare for the fact that your revenue could also potentially, you know, 5x or 10x in the space of a month if you're doing well. 
Um, so so that that's a, that's a really key thing. And then both of those things combined, I think that's the reason that we've had triple digit growth, even though the economy is tanking in double digits right now. Awesome. That's really, really good advice. Really thought provoking. I'll be I'll be thinking on that for a little bit, too, uh, for Novik. Mm. So thanks for sharing. Um, also, through AudioMob, you've built a mentoring program for minority and general students. And in general, Christian, you seem passionate about both empowering those around you and prioritizing diversity and inclusion, at least based on what I've read online. And so I'm curious, do you have any advice on how to distill a diverse and mentor-friendly culture into a company from day one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one key thing is that there's <clears throat> there's a ton of successful companies out there that recruit in certain meth- uh, in certain ways, right? Whether it's going to LinkedIn, job boards, certain events, for instance. The way that certain demographics, whether it's women, where there's people of a certain ethnicity uh, or part of the LGBTQ plus um, 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 demographic, they all participate in different groups. So it was very, very simple for AudioMob. It's the effort that we put in to get the certain kinds of candidates that are on LinkedIn or on certain job boards or go to certain events. We just diversified where we were spending times and ensuring that we're targeting events and groups and things like that um, that were outside of where you would normally target. So it was just taking a very holistic approach, even with the kind of approach with the language of our, of our job board, uh, our job adver- adverts, for instance, and how we post on LinkedIn. Um, the amount of podcasts that we do to kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, really promote the, um, uh, the uh, employee value proposition. We just did all of these different things so that we get candidates from all over the world. I mean, it's definitely no... Uh, uh, it's, 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 it's no um, coincidence that AudioMob is like one of the most diverse startups in ad tech without question, and we're doing so well. <laughs> it's just that we've done all these things and we've got uh, we've employed people that are representative of the demographics that we're influencing, which is gamers, which is everyone. So um, yeah, just do what you're doing, but just target different groups, different job boards, and you'll get a diverse company and your company will be better for it without question. Gotcha, well said. Um- Final question for you, maybe putting, you know, audio and ad tech aside, you know, since this is a, you know, a gaming focused podcast, Christian, I'm just curious, what else in the games industry are you excited about going into 2023? Two things I'm really, really excited about. So the first thing is, um, given the FTX fallout and what's going on in Web3 right now, I really believe this is a good thing for the gaming industry because the good companies that are generating these great Web3 games where you're not just drawing the users because of a Web3 economy, but it's based on actually having a good Web2-oriented game with a Web3 economy. I think that is going to produce Mm -hmm. some insanely good games with next-level retention that we've never seen before. So I'm really, really excited to see where that goes. And this is across uh, mobile and non-mobile games. The other thing I'm really interested in is how this whole... VR metaverse kind of scenario plays out. Um, I'm really interested to see um, if, if, if Facebook can like remain the leader that everyone wants to lead in this whole VR metaverse um, uh, narrative. So those are the two things I'm excited to see to see unfold over the next year. Awesome. Well, Christian, thank you again for joining me today. It was a pleasure learning more about your vision with AudioMob and uh, just your thoughts 
and learnings as an entrepreneur as well. And I look forward to seeing where you and the, the team take it from here. Thanks for having me. That was really, really good, uh, good fun conversation. So I appreciate the invite. Thanks, man. Sweet. And to all of our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to give us a like, subscribe, five stars. It would mean a lot. We'll put the links to all things Christian and Audio Mob in the description below. And of course, we'll drop some links to Novix resources as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>